0: Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. you can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. So I want to do one thing real quick as we kind of get rolling here. Would you guys just just turn around and I want you to talk to someone around you and I want you to take about 60 seconds just tell someone around you about the most famous person you ever met. who were they why were they famous? How did you meet them go? All right, let's get to the end of the stories. Any of you got any good stories? Who's the most famous person someone met? Mario Andretti, that's nice. Someone else? Shaquille O'Neal. Um, you were looking up big time. Someone else? Justin Wade, nice. You met George Washington. That is seriously impressive. Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure you take the cake on this whole deal. That's awesome. You're impressive, buddy. That's impressive. He's good at math, too. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have to laugh, to be together, to rejoice as your people. Father, thank you for grace that frees us to, uh, to be together in unity, to be together in, uh, in peace. Father, I pray that your grace would so awe us that we would not be able to hold back from telling others about it. Father, would you allow us to be the mouthpieces of Christ to our city, to our friends, to our families, to all those around us, and to all the world. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, Last week in this series called Growing Oaks, And we're going to be uh, looking, really we'll be primarily Matthew 9, but we're going to start out here briefly in Matthew chapter 4. And kids, I've got a pop quiz. I know that's really mean to do. It's the first week of summer and you come to church and you're getting a pop quiz. So I'm sorry about that, but it's going to be an easy one, okay? Let me give you a really easy quiz for our kids and our students here. Matthew 4.19, if you look on the slide behind me, says this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, Jesus said. So students, here's a question. What is a fisherman supposed to do? Catch fish. Man, you're sharp. You guys are on it. You got this. Now, let me ask you this. What would you say to a fisherman who never caught any fish? You're a bad fisherman. See, this is not difficult stuff, right? Right? And so it's interesting as you look at this, you think, what is it we're called to be? Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. But it's interesting, you're not just fishermen, we're fishers of men. And so that means we are to fish for men and women. We're to fish for other people. We're to fish for other, uh, other people that are like us. And somehow Jesus says, if you truly follow me, you will become a fisher of men. And so here's my, my question for us. Where are your men and women? Where are our men and women? If we're truly following Jesus, should we not be able to point to those whom he has used us to fish for and to catch? I think as, as Jesus starts out, it's a pretty simple thing. This is when Jesus is beginning to follow his disciples and he connects this idea immediately. He says, hey, take a, come up and follow me. And as you follow me, I'm gonna show you how to do something with your life and invest your life in something important. And if we're truly followers of Jesus, then we are gonna become fishers of men. If we're authentic followers of Christ, then we are going to build relationships and friendships with people who don't know Jesus because that's what Jesus did. A life that's built upon Christ is gonna begin to see life, see the world the way Christ does. And so as we talk about this thing of developing a deep and meaningful life, surely if we've got a deep and meaningful life in Christ, one of the things that's gonna bubble out of that is that we're gonna begin to become fishermen of other people like Jesus calls us to do. As a church, we talk about one of our, one of our core values is that we wanna be, is missional living. We wanna be people who live on mission for him. What that means is we've all got a job to do. That Christ didn't leave us here. I mean, we could, have, we could have baptized you and just held you underwater and sent you to heaven, but we didn't. We said, raised to walk in newness of life because you're saved from your sin, but you're saved for Jesus. You're saved for a mission. You're saved for something which you're called to do. And so we've all got a job to do. And so part of what the church is, as we think about what does it look like for us to build Christ's church and to grow his church, part of what the church is, it's the people and community of, of Christ living as a light in the world, showing off God's good works within our city. It's, called, it's, it's us being, um, being people who are generous. It's us who live a life of integrity it's those of us who are good bosses and good employees. It's uh, those who care for the poor, those who come alongside, those who are struggling and hurting, uh, those who befriend the lonely, those who care for the people in our city. That's part of what the church is meant to do. We're not just meant to, to, to huddle here in our joy, but we're meant to take our joy and move out into the world and to share it with those around us. And, and so one of the things we say in our mission statement is we wanna be authentic followers of Jesus who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. Well, we, live, we, we, we express the good of our world or live for the good of our world in many different ways, but the greatest good is obviously the gospel. The greatest good we have to offer is the message of Jesus and the good news that he has come to save us. And so as a, as a community of faith, we wanna be those who live out what it means to follow Jesus and in front of our friends, but then also tell them about Jesus by sharing an actual witness with them. In fact, one of the clearest, most straightforward commands that Jesus gives his followers was that we are to be witnesses. Earlier, I asked you guys to, to, to kind of circle up and just share uh, an encounter you had with someone who was famous. And, you know, it was pretty easy to hear the buzz in the room. It wasn't hard for you guys to begin to talk about that, was it? Because you understand naturally what it is to be a witness, hey, I met Shaquille O'Neal. He was huge. I couldn't believe it. I shook his hand. It swallowed mine. Like you can describe an encounter like that and it's really easy because it was an encounter that you had. And so we, we naturally know what it means to be a witness. You see your favorite team win a championship and you go back to the office and you begin to talk about it. Dude, did you see that touchdown? Did you, you know, you begin to talk about those things because you know naturally what it is to be a witness. You Experience the birth of a child and you just are in awe of it and so you tell your family and friends it was amazing and you begin to tell them about the worshipful experience you had you get your first car driver's license as a kid and you go on that first deal and you come back and you're just kind of giddy and you have to tell someone like dude i had freedom to go in my own car somewhere else by myself and we naturally understand what it is to be a witness right these are things that, we, that are normal and natural part of our lives. And yet when it comes to our spiritual lives, oftentimes we step out and start become awkward. Like, oh, this feels like a whole different thing. And in some ways it is because there's so much more at stake. But in other ways it's not. We're to describe the encounter that we had with Jesus and the impact it had on us and just tell other people about that. But it's one of the most straightforward commands that you see in scriptures. In fact, Jesus invested three years training his disciples. And he begins it with, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And he ends it with, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And so in this, this time where Jesus is interacting with his disciples, he's, he, he not only tells them that they need to be his witnesses, but he shows them how to do it and models it for him and lives it in front of them. And then they saw him his life and the way he lived. They saw his sacrificial death for them. And then they saw the resurrected Jesus And because of everything they experienced and everything they witnessed in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, man, they were just about to blow up with this desire to go tell other people about who he is and what he had done for them. They had witnessed greatness and they wanted to tell others about it. And so... This was the assignment he gave them. Acts eight says, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Meaning, you'll be my witnesses right there at home and then you'll be my witnesses kind of in concentric circles, moving out all the way to the ends of the earth. That was the mission of the church. When Jesus sent us out, he says, the Holy, he says, go and make disciples and behold, I will be with you. He sends his Holy Spirit to be with us and empower us and strengthen us and, and convict us and stir our hearts for others so that we would begin right at home and we'd move out and begin to tell others about who Christ is. So it's pretty obvious kind of what Jesus wants us to do. Let's talk a little bit about what kind of witnesses we should, we, we should want we should be. Uh, I think one of the difficulties when you think about witnessing is there's so many negative examples and stereotypes. And so that, I think, weighs down on us as we look at some of the negative stereotypes of what kind of witness do we not want to be. So let me, let me, t- me kind of start there today. Let's start with what is witnessing not supposed to be like. First, uh, don't be like the used car salesman. Don't, don't, don't be so fixated on closing the deal. Now, let me say, they're, they're really good car salesmen. Like I know some in the city, if you need to know them, I can give you their name. But there's a stereotype of a used car salesman that says, I don't care about you. In fact, I don't even really wanna know your name, but I'm gonna work you over for the, to try to close the deal and get a hundred bucks by the end of the day and send you out and bring the next one in, right? That's the stereotype. See, some people approach sharing their faith like, like the, the used car salesman. That really it's a transactional relationship there's not a a real friendship there's not a real compassion there's not a real concern and care about you as a person but it's just man i want to get you to i want to close the deal with you to get you to to say that that you're on my team and so there's a sense in which they're only interested in trying to convert someone to their religion or their culture or their group but they don't genuinely have your best interest in mind let me ask you this do you think anyone felt that way when jesus interacted with them No, I think Jesus was present with them. Jesus cared about them. He had compassion for them. He wanted to invite them into the best life they could possibly have. He wanted to invite them into the fullest, richest life they could ever have. He wasn't just trying to transact something with them. And so we don't wanna be those who are so fixated on statistics or possible conversions or something like that, that I'm only pretending to love you long enough to get you to say yes, and then I'm gonna move on to the next thing. But we wanna genuinely care for people. So let's look at the next example. Don't be the angry bullhorn guy. I mean, don't scare people away. Like there's always, there's a stereotype. You see the guy with a sign that says repent and usually has some hot topic issue and, on there and he's screaming at people on the street corner, yelling at them about what they should not be doing and what they should not, their lives should not be about. Really, those guys don't exist as much anymore. Now those guys are just internet trolls, Right? Like those are the guys that show up in all the comments on Facebook, you know, just bashing people in, in, and stringing us off or continually posting articles that are negative. And, and they're just screaming at people, but there's not genuinely, genuine love that's coming from them. These are the people that are always yelling about politics, always yelling about the degradation of our country. There's negative associations that we sometimes make with these guys because we don't feel like they represent Christ well. And, and oftentimes what you see is that they're just filled with hate. But they're saying they're supposed to be talking about the love of God. And it's confusing for people. How is it you're telling me the good news, but it feels like such bad news all the time? And so I think it's confusing for people. Next one is the moralistic church lady, meaning don't try to fix them. See, oftentimes we, we skip past the gospel, we skip past. Uh, the, things that are, that are, uh, the things that people need most and we jump to their external behavior and say, man, I wanna, I wanna correct your external behavior and we don't get to the heart of the issue. The heart is they need Jesus. The, 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 let me just let you in on a tip that's gonna free you up from some anxiety. Sinners who don't believe in God are gonna act like sinners who don't believe in God. That's always gonna be true. Sinners who don't believe in God are gonna act like sinners who don't believe in God. So why are we surprised when someone acts the way that they're wired to act? And unless God comes in and does some work in their heart, it doesn't do us any good to try to do behavior modification and, and kind of correct the outside and manipulate them into some kind of obedience if we don't go in and tell them about Jesus and allow him to reconstruct their heart so that what comes out of their heart is a natural overflow of obedience. If we're just harping on their external behavior, we're not really going to fix them. Any of you know the Saturday Night Live skit of the church lady? Yes. That's what I'm talking about, right? It's just, she's horrified about the, kind of the direction of the country and the sin in the world and all these things. And so she's always talking about Satan and she's always talking about whatever it is that you're doing wrong. But there's not a sense of her heart has been captured by Jesus and she wants to love you. And this doesn't necessarily, you don't, by the way, you don't have to be a lady. You could be a dude and be, be this person too. Um, you, you, could, you could be someone who is just uh, continually ranting and raving about the things that are going, but it typically feels more like fear and judgment than it does love. And yet, uh, scriptures tell us that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let me tell you the last uh, thing, or another one of these characters that we need to avoid. Don't be the intellectual debater guy. Don't argue, uh, don't argue against them. Now, there's a difference between being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you, which the scriptures call us to do. We should be able to give a defense. We should be able to sit down and, and interact with people and say, let me tell you about what the scriptures say about that. And we should, we should be equipped and, and work into those things. But there's a difference between giving a defense and saying, well, let me tell you about the hope I have and saying, let me tell you why you are wrong in arguing against someone. Oftentimes these are the people that love apologetics, not just because they want to be able to, to understand the questions, but because they like to win arguments. These are people that sometimes they win the battle, but they lose the war because they're so fixated on out arguing a person that they don't genuinely love that person. And so the, somehow the love of Christ is lost in their argument. Oftentimes this person can major in the minors, they want to fight over, uh, fight over philosophy or fight over uh, creation order, or fight over these other things. and it's not as though none of those conversations are worth it, are, are, are unworthy of, of dialogue. but sometimes we get it out of whack and we make those the primary thing, as opposed to the secondary thing that, that allows us to stay focused on Christ and on uh, what he has done for us. so we want to be ready to give a defense of the hope, but we don't want to run around just with our kind of Bible bazooka trying to blast people out of the water saying, oh no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. We want to come in and say, let me show you why Jesus is so good. Next, uh, we, want to, we don't want to be the hyper-spiritual guru. Um, don't freak them out. See, sometimes people are coming from a world, we're interacting with people that they don't believe in God. All they believe is the here and now. They believe that, that we are material beings and everything that we have is right in front of us. And so when you start talking about something outside of their experience, and it, it, can, it can be something that's sort of unsettling for them. And so we want to uh, we, we, we avoid talking in such super spiritual terms that no one understands where we're, getting, where we're coming from you know, you don't want them to think you're an alien from another planet describing a whole other existence, right? You want them to believe that Jesus walked in the flesh here. He incarnated himself here. He was one of us. He's fully human. And so he's relatable. He's someone that we can connect with. And so uh, sometimes I think this shows up at people that say, my aunt died last week and it was such a blessing. And people are going, whoa, did they hate their aunt? Like, that's really weird for someone else. It's like my, my relative died and it's good. And they're like, Uh, question, right? So there can be something that's confusing about that. So we we may have to unpack that or explain some of those things and not just assume they do. Uh, Sometimes we say things like, you know, I had the best morning. I sat down with Jesus and he just, I felt his presence all over me. And they're just kind of like, ooh, that's kind of weird. Like, I don't know what that means. You know, it can be really confusing. We just need to think about the way in which we're communicating some of these things so that it makes sense to the average person that's around us and they're not just confused, or a friend loses their job who doesn't know Jesus, and you go, well, God's got something better for you. And they're like, well, yeah, but I can't pay my bills, so help me with that, right? We can't just throw these platitudes out and throw these kind of super spiritual, hyper spiritual comments out at people and expect them to, have, to be winsomely invited into a relationship with Christ. God's not a Band-Aid, we just throw at people like some super spiritual answer. We need to be in a relationship with people and genuinely love them. So these are some things I think we need to avoid. Can I, uh, why did I take time, I think, to, to talk through these bad examples? See, so there's people all around the world that desperately need to see Jesus. And what I think you and I need to understand and, and maybe need to own is that you may be the only Jesus they ever see. That, that if, if we don't speak up, these examples may be the only ones that they get to see. We may be the only true Jesus that they ever get to see. And so we have an opportunity, if, if we abdicate, and leave the witnessing to examples like this, to the stereotypes that are negative, then people are never going to see the true Jesus, and it's unlikely that they're going to trust him. Do you know that God may have positioned you perfectly as the only one that can be a witness to someone in your city? You may be the only one that has an interaction or a relationship or an open door to walk into a relationship and build a bridge of connection to that person that the gospel can move across. There may be no one else on this planet that God has positioned in that place in order to make that play. You know, in football, one of the things we talk about is being able to count on your teammates. And one of the things that, that whenever I played football, there was always this, like you have 11 guys and everyone's got to get their gap. And you talk about gap protection. And what it means, what, what we meant by that was, I mean, there's one place that you're the only person on the team poised and ready to make a play if, if the play comes that direction. You're the only one that can intersect the, and, and make the stop in that, in that moment. And if you don't show up and there's a hole, and when there's a hole, there's a problem. And so one of the things I think it's important for us to understand is, and God's positioned each one of us in a, in a circle of relationships. He's given us a role to play. He's, he's given us a place that we, are, that we are positioned in order to act for him. And I think it's important. But I also think it's important to know you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be an expert in biblical theology to be a witness, you can, you can tell people just what you know. One of my favorite examples of this in the scriptures is there's a blind guy that uh, Jesus heals and he goes back and the religious leaders begin to debate with him. And there's kind of this debate about, well, you know, when did he happen and how this happened and how did it work? And he finally steps back and he goes, look, I don't know. I don't understand all that. What I do know is I was blind, now I see. And it's so simple. He goes, well, just let me tell you what I know. I couldn't see, I met Jesus. I can see, that's all I got for you. Like that's witnessing. That's really what you're called to do is just tell people, man, here's what happened. My life was like this and I met Jesus and this is what happened. That's simple. We can all do that. We can all step into that place. Uh, one of my mentors, Tommy Nelson said, uh, he "Always used to say evangelism is, a bunch of, evangelism is a bunch of nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And I, I love that. It's a bunch of nobodies telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And that really is our task, and it's what we're meant to do. So let's take a little bit of time to look at the real Jesus. Look with me at Matthew chapter 9, and let's look at the example he gives. And I think it's important for us as we think about this. This is the first book in the New Testament. Matthew himself wrote this book, and as Matthew was one who was far from God, who got saved by Jesus and interacted with him, Matthew then writes this book. And so Matthew is, he's telling, it's why we call it the Gospel of Matthew, and we're going to look at a, at a passage where he talks about the time when Jesus calls him to trust him and to follow him and kind of what happens in that. So Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 9. And just look at a couple of verses here. And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Very simple section here that I think is also very important for us to notice. You notice the, the phrase we looked at back in Matthew 4 uh, that we started off today with. We said, Jesus came to some of his disciples and he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, right? So Jesus begins there and talks to some of his disciples and says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Here, Matthew's recording the time when Jesus came to him, one, another one of his disciples and said, Matthew, I want you to follow me. And what's the very first thing that he does whenever Matthew follows him? He goes and spends time at a table with other sinners and tax collectors. It's as though Jesus said, you know what, let me give you the classroom. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then he steps in the laboratory and he said, follow me and let's go actually do that, right? So Jesus told him, hey, I want you to become a fisherman. Then he said, hey, let's go on a fishing trip and takes them into an interaction where they're actually gonna interact with these people. It's fascinating though, because Matthew wants you to understand a couple things. Matthew wrote this book. He designed it in a specific way. He's putting and positioning verses nine and 10 together for a reason. This isn't accidental. Matthew says, uh, Matthew first owns, he said, look, I was the tax collector. A tax collector was a a spiritual outsider. It was a relational outsider. It was a political outsider. Really in in almost every way in that culture, Matthew's saying, look, I was the guy that sort of betrayed my people, betrayed my heritage, betrayed my my spiritual uh, foundation and and rejected everything that I had been taught as a kid. And I was a tax collector. And yet Jesus came to this one who by all external perspectives of, of Jewish religion would have been a failure. And Jesus comes to him and says, you, follow me. And Matthew gets up and follows him. And it's amazing. Matthew purposely says, and he rose. And Matthew, by the way, he says, he rose. He's saying, and I got up and I followed him. And what's the first thing Matthew records next? It is that Jesus reclined at the table in the house and behold, many tax collectors and sinners. What was Matthew a tax collector and sinner. Jesus calls him to follow him. And instead of saying, get away from all those tax collectors and sinners, Jesus says, hey, why don't you bring all your friends in and let's have a meal together and let's talk about what it is that we're called, or or talk about what it means to follow me. I think it's interesting that Matthew wants us to understand, to make a spiritual and relational connection that whenever we're called to trust Jesus and follow Jesus, part of that calling is immediately connected to befriending those who also need Jesus. God's strategy and his plan is to take those he reaches with the gospel to help them to reach others with the gospel. That really is the way in which Jesus operated what he instructed his disciples to do, but also what he modeled for them to do. Do you know the same is true of you and me? If if we're following Jesus, he's gonna lead us to live like Jesus in front of our friends. That's, the, that's part of what it means to follow him, is that he will also make us fishers of men as he did them. So, you know, it might be surprising. Do you know, statistically, 20% of the people who call themselves non-Christians say they don't even know another Christian. They can't name one. They don't have a relationship with one. They don't work with one that they know of. They have no recollection of interacting with another Christian at all, and yet they say, I'm a non-Christian. And that ought to be shocking for us, but also tells us the opportunity that's in front of us. But let me ask you this, how can they hear of Christ if they don't know a Christian? Does it make logical sense to you that those who have banked their lives and their faith on Jesus and said, I want to follow Jesus and he's the most important thing in my life, would want to tell others about him as well? Can you just make the logical connection there? I think we can see that pretty clearly. And yet so often it's easy for us to skip past that. I think we really have to fight the temptation to just look past people. We have, to, we have to fight to actually be present with people. We have to fight to, to get to know their names, to, to get to see who they, who they are and to get to invest our lives in, in getting to know them. What would the, it look like for us to find out the story of the lives of those around us, to listen to the questions that they're asking, to discover the hurts and the pains that they've walked through in their life so that we can, as those who, it says that Jesus looked out on the city of those who were lost and it says, he felt compassion. For them, for they were lost like sheep without a shepherd. What it look like for us to go to the office and look with compassion like Jesus did on those who are there. To walk through our neighborhoods and not just pull into a driveway, but stop and maybe go across the street to the person who's lost like a sheep without a shepherd. That we might befriend them, that we might care for them. Friends, we get to be witnesses to the spiritual reality of what life with Jesus is like. So we build relationships with people who don't know Jesus. We live lives of integrity, lives of generosity, lives of grace, lives of joy, lives of peace in front of them to the best of our ability. And when we fall short, we go, that's why we need a Savior. You want to come meet him too? Because I I see you struggling with the same things I struggle with. And so we have a relationship with them that doesn't end with a transaction. And if they don't immediately trust Jesus, we we don't run away from them, but we stay there because we're truly friends. We truly care for them and we truly want to see them meet Jesus. So let me share with you how this connects with our strategy as a church. Um, hopefully as you came in, you, had a, you got a, received a piece of paper that looks like this. This is a strategy for building the church. Uh, if you don't have one of those, I've got a couple people that maybe would pass those out to you. Uh, if you don't have one and you'd like one, would you just raise your hand and uh, someone will come bring you one of those sheets. So if you don't have one, just stick your hand up and hold it up and we'll bring you one. Um, but I would love for you to just take that out and look at it. I want to make this just really simple and clear for us this morning and help you see how you fit into the strategy that Jesus gave for building his church. Uh, see, redemption's strategy for building our church and really for our mission of helping everyday people wake up to deep, meaningful life in Christ is, is pretty simple. And it's really based on what we saw Jesus do. So the first thing that you see there is building a real relationship with the unchurched. See, we want you to build authentic, real friendships with people who don't know Jesus. It's part of, of what we wanna be about is we, we wanna have real credible relationships with our friends and acquaintances in our city. And this requires integrity, it requires honesty, it requires openness on our part, that we can't be closed off to them, but we've gotta be invested in them. And so our ability really to share God's good news with others is directly related to the kind of lives we live ourselves. And so we wanna, we wanna live lives of character that allow for us to become a bridge builder that connects with someone who needs to know the gospel and the good news of Jesus. So we wanna wanna live authentic lives in a way that earns a right to be able to speak into someone else's life. And then we seek ways to really express Christ's love in really simple actions. What does it look like for you just to take a glass of water To someone, to share a meal with someone, to offer a word of encouragement to someone, but to come alongside them in the simple things that we often saw Jesus do and and simply love them freely because of Christ. See, this is really the foundational step, the beginning step to our strategy to build our church is that we have relationships with those in our city who need to know Jesus. And if we fail to complete this step, we really can't, we can't accomplish what God's asking us to do. What that means is your friendships and your relationships with people outside the church is essential to the mission of our church. that this is this is something that's that's mission critical for us. and so and it's a truism in life that, it, that we only prior, or we only accomplish what we prioritize. and if you have a task list, some half of you are probably to-do listers. And you've got a list of stuff that you prioritize and you really have a hard time sleeping at night if you haven't checked most of those things off the list. Any of you want to own that? Admit it. I know there's a whole bunch of you that are like that. Uh, I'm, I probably could be more like that. I've just got my list is so long, I just give up. But uh, we all have these things that we prioritize. We have these things that we weren't going to give up and we we're going we're to make a priority. Can I just encourage you? We want to encourage you to make this a priority. And so one of the ways that we want to make it a priority is we want to talk about, really our first five friends. Like who are the first five friends that you want to prioritize relationship with and, and prioritize your prayer life around caring for them and asking that God would that they would meet Jesus. Can you can you name a list? And if there's anything I want you to do coming out of this sermon day, it would be this. Would you would you put together a list of your first five friends? It doesn't mean you're not going to share share the gospel with number 12, 174, or, or a million. But there, there's a whole world of people out there. But if we if we say we're going to save everyone, we're probably not going to share with anyone because it's too overwhelming. So what is the priority? What are you, who are the first five that you just say, God? I mean, I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna ask that they would come to meet Jesus and I'm gonna prioritize some time and I'm gonna invest in them and I'm going to look for ways to connect with them and I'm gonna try to befriend them and live out an authentic life in front of them. And it may be the, the soccer team your kids play on. Like it may, that may be the circle of friends that, that you look at and go, man, there's a handful of people there that that's who I'm gonna prioritize. It may be coworkers. It may be that you just say, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna take one lunch I'm going to make this a budget item, and I'm going to go out to eat once a week with someone at the office who doesn't know God. And I'm just going to prioritize that as part of my normal rhythm of my life. Uh, Maybe uh, when you think about what it is to to get to know your neighbors, ways in which you can be creative and getting to to know them, inviting them into your home and connecting with them. Students, and who are your classmates that need to know Jesus? Who are your schoolmates, your teammates? the ones that, that you sit next to in and, and classes that they need to know Jesus? What would it look like for you just to say, I mean, I'm gonna walk in every day and try to encourage them and I'm gonna pray for them. So I, my hope is that we would all have, that every member and attender of our church would have a list of their first five people that they're prioritizing relationally and in terms of their prayer life, asking God to do a work in their life. Second part of our strategy, look at uh, number two on the list, sharing a verbal witness. See, once we build a credible relationship with someone, eventually we have to, we can't just hope that they kind of rubs off on them. Eventually we have to share a verbal witness. We need to communicate the truth of the gospel. We need to tell them about Jesus. It doesn't mean we force our message on our friends. It just means that we're available to point them to Christ whenever an opportunity presents itself. That God's gonna open a door. And then when he does, we're gonna, we're gonna step through that door and say, can I just tell you, about what Jesus did for me when I was in a similar situation? And we begin to share with them um, kind of a, a little more specifically who Christ is and what he's done for us. I think a lot of us, we don't do this because we feel like we have to have this kind of polished, canned message that we've memorized of, let me show you. And, you know, the, the specific ways in which uh, you can be saved and we have to walk through this, this kind of compelling spiritual presentation. But when this thing? I don't think it has to feel that way. Oftentimes what we see is that when I, when I share um, that people don't really respond immediately with the gospel. In fact, my wife is a lot more of an evangelist than I am and she's more naturally gifted. She sometimes gets in the conversation, I'm like, how did you even get there? And she's like, I don't know, they just asked me. And this happens for her all the time. That doesn't happen for me. For me, it tends to be a lot more difficult. And honestly, whenever I share, I always feel a little bit timid, a little bit nervous. Even doing what I do for a living, knowing what I, what I know, I still feel a little timid when I cross that bridge and begin to have that conversation. And I want you to know, I, I don't think there's ever been a time where I shared the gospel the first time with someone and they just trusted it right then. And that's almost always what happens for you too, is that when you share the gospel, that most, most of the time people don't embrace it immediately, but they watch our lives. And they come alongside us and they want to see, man, were they just selling me something or do they really care? And over time, maybe God opens the door and he works in their life in a way that they begin to ask questions and he begin to be open to the truth of the gospel. And so at that point, we really want to move to step three. So share what you know and then invite them to church to learn some more. What it'll mean for you if you thought about the church as kind of your fishing partner? Like, you know, you and the church are in the boat together and we're all fishing and so as you're connecting with your friend, as you're sharing a verbal witness and telling them about Jesus, that you just would see us as your partner to come alongside and kind of help them in that process. And so we wanna invite them to church so that they can learn more. Um, Leslie Newbigin says that in the New Testament, it almost, the, sharing the gospel almost always begins with a question. What is going on with you people? That there's almost always this sense that they look and go, something's up with y'all. Like, why are you caring for these people you don't know? Why is it that the Jews and Gentiles are connected? Why is it that the poor and rich are, sit side by side and worship the same God together? Why is it that, and they begin to ask these questions because the peculiar love that they see in the midst of God's people, and they wanna know more. And so we wanna invite them to come in and learn more about this. That's why we talk about Sunday mornings being the great room of the church, that we really want people to come in and experience the family. I want them to get to know you, get to know who you are and what you're like. That when someone would walk in here, they go, Man, what is going on with all these people? So as their interest is peaked, they begin to ask more questions. They begin to seek more fully the truth. And they would do that. So your friends are invited to come any day. Let me share with you just one of the simple strategy things we're doing. Uh, we, we've crafted in our calendar just six days that we call big days. And really those are, it's not, it's not a thing magic. It's just a, a practical way that we're trying to to help you be able to invite people in. And those, those six days, you can see them listed there on your calendar. One is back to school Sunday in August. One's fall kickoff. We've got a big party that we throw in September. Another one is Christmas Eve. New Year uh, kickoff Sunday is really Super Bowl Sunday in February. Easter is another one of those. And then another one is our summer kickoff. That's actually next Sunday, by the way. And so one of the things that we do in those, those are days that we, they're really built around Holidays where people are naturally interested in coming to Christ, or days in which we're starting a new sermon series, starting new small groups, and days where it's really easy for someone who's new to jump into the life of the church. So strategically, we just, I just want you to be aware that those are there, that we've got these six days that those are there just to remind you, man, these are great times to invite your friends in. They can jump right into a small group. They can jump into a new sermon series. They can get to know who we are as a people. And we wanna invite them in so they get to know who we are and what we're all about. And so those big days, just as you see those on the calendar, I want those always to be a reminder for you. And what's going on with my first five? Which one of those could I invite? Who do I need to be praying for? What are the ones that I wanna to invite to come just taste and see that the Lord is good in, in the midst of his people? So that's uh, step three as you think about that. And then the last two aspects, I'll go quickly. A worship gathering for believers that's accessible to unbelievers. Here's what I mean by that. We want a worship service that really is worshipful. God is the center of what we do. We are here as believers in Christ that trust him, whose lives are staked on it. And so we come and we go hard after Jesus and we worship him and we acknowledge who he is and we repent and we confess our sin and confess our need for him, which is a really weird thing to do if you're not a believer. Uh, But we, we wanna build a service that really is for believers, but we also wanna make it accessible for someone who's new to church. And so one of the things you'll see, Chris Clark often does this, and we'll do this. is We try to explain kind of everything that we do in the church or in the service so that someone who doesn't know the church lingo or doesn't know the church rhythm or doesn't know these things, that, that they can connect and make sense of what it is we're trying to do. And so there's times where we'll say, and we're gonna have communion, and here's what communion really represents, and here's what this means. And if you don't trust, you can simply sit and pray. But if you have trusted, we wanna invite you. So we wanna explain the things that are happening so that those who are not believers It don't feel like they're, they're, you know, like a friend of mine told me one time, and this was hilarious, that he provided a friend to church and they came in and the first time he saw words on the screen, he goes, oh, you guys do karaoke, right? That was his perspective because he'd never been in church before. He had no idea what corporate worship was. He didn't know what singing was like. He's just like, oh, it's like group karaoke. And so, you know, he needed to explain what it is. And so we want to explain the things that we do, man, we're coming to worship a savior. And so Chris tries to explain those elements oftentimes, but that's important for us. We want you to know your friends, that, that there's this progression of them coming in, beginning to experience this. And as they begin to see us model what it looks like to walk by faith in Christ, we just trust that God's gonna do a work in them. And eventually, as he opens their eyes, that they may step across the line of faith as well. And then lastly, participating in a small group. We do really wanna get people in relationships where no one walks alone, where everyone has a chance to sit down and say, and I heard what Jeff said in the sermon on Sunday, but I'm not really sure what that looks like for me as a 22-year-old right now. I'm not really sure what that that means for me in terms of my... Uh, my, my physical attraction. I don't know what that means for me in terms of my money. I'm not sure what that means for me in terms of the career I should seek. I don't know what that means for me in terms of my, my habits and hang-ups and the hurts of my life. And we need a place where we can process those things in a small group. And so we want to invite everyone into a small group where they mature in Christ. And so not just introducing people to Christ, but we want to help them mature. As Christ said, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching them to obey everything which I've commanded you. So we baptize them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we teach them to obey and help them to grow up and mature. So, friends, this is what we want to be about as a church. It's really who we are. And let me end with this. Romans 10 says this: "For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." That's good news. But how then will they call on Him in whom they've not believed? How are they to believe in Him of whom they've not they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Friends, if no one is sent, no one will hear. If no one hears, no one will believe. If no one believes, no one will call on Jesus. If no one calls on Jesus, no one will be saved. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for the life that we have. I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for your love that covers over all our sins. Father, would you so convince us of your love for us that we would want to share it with others. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.